All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Uh, with me on the show today, I have a special guest. We have Jesse Gunta Rafe. Jesse is a psychotherapist and certified success coach who's helped hundreds of young adults who feel lost find clarity and direction in their lives. As a teenager, she struggled with anxiety, depression, and chronic self-doubt. Through her own emotional journey, she developed the tools and methodology that has helped empower her clients. Her primary motivation and deepest satisfaction lies in the transformation that she sees her clients achieve through their own dedication, self-discovery, and strength. Um, and Jesse has a brand new book coming out. Um, it actually probably will be out by the time that this interview airs. It is called Life Launch, a Roadmap to an Extraordinary Adulthood. Jesse, I'm really happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Well, since I just found out your book is coming out tomorrow, tell me a little about uh, kind of what, what we can expect with the book. What sort of inspired you to write it and, and what's it about? Yeah, so I've been running my psychotherapy slash coaching practice for the last 15 years. And it's amazing to be able to sit across from someone and see them go after creating the kind of life they want. Um, but in the last few years, I felt like, well, I only have so much time to see people face to face. And wouldn't be it be amazing to give people a practical guide to basically in their homes um, do the kind of process I'm doing in the room with them uh, on their own. It's much cheaper and it's uh, now accessible to everyone. So it's, it's a book that's basically a 360 degree view of everything that you would, every category of your life from your physical body to your emotional, uh, to your emotional health, to your relationships and it's and it's compiled of stories from my own life as well as the uh lives of my clients very cool and it looks like so do you work uh, mostly with uh sort of young adults or teenagers is that yeah so your... um mainly like people in their 20s and 30s uh i also have regular adults too because as you would guess as you work with young adults you also get some of their parents and then their parents refer their friends and so on and so forth but the focus of the book on a huge part of my practice is people in there just trying to get there past the teenage years but they're now going out into the world and they're trying to make their they're trying to launch into their own adulthood and create their own lives and I'm try to give them the things that I wish I knew in my, in my twenties. Right. And I'm just curious, what are some of those things? Um, so, uh, like the main one is that our mind is designed to be negative. So I always thought, oh, I just have, you know, you hear it a lot now, my anxiety, my depression, we think of ourselves as, uh, individuals that are just negative and struggling with mental health but what i've realized over time is it's not just an individual thing our our it's it's actually a part of our survival system so 
our minds, that voice in our heads, its job is not to make us feel at peace and happy and centered and fulfilled. Its job is to keep us alive because it comes from a time when we were facing life and death on a daily basis. And the best way to not get eaten by a tiger or kicked out of your tribe and starved to get starved to death is to be in a hypervigilant, anxious state assessing danger. And what that looks like when you're not facing life and death is anxiety, low self-esteem and depression. That's, that's what it looks like in the most extreme forms. But I think all of us on some degree are grappling with our negative minds and the less value, the, if we realize that we're all dealing with that, then we, then it depersonalizes it a little bit and it can empower us to start to figure out how to separate from it. Okay. And what are some of the other challenges just as far as, you know, people in their twenties and thirties, what, um, what other sort of challenges separates that group from maybe other psychotherapy patients? Well, why they're my favorite group is that they're past in when you're a teenager you're starting <clears throat> to separate but you don't have enough self-worth or confidence to really take a good look inside yet you're kind of just trying you know the typical stereotypes of teenagers is like i know everything and you don't know anything else and and that comes from that's real because you have to kind of be in a narcissistic place in order to get the strength to separate. But by the time you hit your 20s, you're now ready to actually look inside and go, these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses, and how am I gonna put a plan together now to create the, the emotional space that I wanna live in and, and then practically job-wise, family-wise, um, all the other, all the other aspects of life. And so, um, what, what makes it unique is you're not ingrained in any bad habits. That's why it's my favorite because the world's your blank canvas and you're ready to take a good hard look inside, but you're not so attached to doing things the quote unquote wrong way that you're really malleable and you can set yourself up to have great coping skills and a great life. If you're doing this kind of self-reflective work at that time. Since the problems aren't that different, it's just your lesson ingrained in them is what I would say. Okay. I'm curious as far as like the, the challenges of kind of figuring out, you know, people in their 20s, you know, figuring out what they're trying to do. And there's so many, as you're kind of saying, there's so many um, sort of like this blank slate where there's so many different, you know, paths and, and tools that are at your disposal how do you sort of figure or help people navigate and sort of find do, do you, is that a big part of your work kind of helping people find which sort of career paths or just life paths that they want to start taking yes yes so um the short answer is baby steps i think like uh, a lot of times, whatever goal we're trying to achieve, we try to take, we look at this giant goal and we try to take giant steps towards it and then we get overwhelmed and then we feel like we failed and then we bury our head in the sand. So the first thing I do is I 
help my clients get really clear on what it is they want. Because I think there are things that we want that come from what I call our true self, from our soul, our heart, deep inside of us that feel inspiring and exciting to us. And then there are what I call ego goals or things that we want because they, it'll make us look good to other people. Or, you know, we think by achieving this amount of money or this amount of power or this kind of relationship, I'm going to feel better about myself, which it doesn't actually work when we're, we're I can work a little temporarily to get something external to make you make yourself feel better about yourself. But in the, in the long term, if you're going after goals that come from your true self that are really inspiring to you, not to your audience, then, um, then they're, much, they're much easier to get motivated to go after and they're much more fulfilling to achieve. So a huge part of where I start my work is helping people figure out what they really want in their lives, what would be exciting to them, and then how do we create a plan to slowly go after it? Very cool. Is, do, you, do you often find that what people think that they want is really what their parents want or what society wants? Or like, do you have to kind of tease out what it is that they actually want themselves? Yeah. Yes. Like I actually have uh, like a five step um, plan for creating what you you want in your life and step one is separating your true self goals from your from your ego goals and i can do entire workshops just on that if you master that step of just figuring out what you actually want like inside it is 80 percent of the work because because i think because the other stuff it becomes a distraction and uh can take up time and energy that's unnecessary because it's not actually aligned with what you want based on your family now based social media has a huge influence on it you know so based that where everyone's projecting all these images of what the ideal life is it can be very very confusing so to figure this part out i think it's yeah. the most complicated part actually Let's talk a little more about that, what you just mentioned, uh, sort of social media, um, kind of giving people these, uh, the way I think of it, it's kind of, you know, just these slivers of kind of like the, the top moments of our lives, you know, the very best moments, but then other people kind of see it and think that's, you know, sort of our daily, you know, that's just like our average life, where really it's, you know, vacations or wedding like you know it's it's something that's abnormal from from just a typical life but then we sort of view it as the norm um what what role do you do you feel like social media has um i guess both just in your work as a psychotherapist along with just what role you kind of think it has in in sort of either creating mental health problems or contributing do you feel like it is a sort of a strong contributor? Um, yes. The short answer is yes. Uh, the longer answer is, I think what's really hard is if most people are posting the, what they want everyone to see and the high, like the highlights of their life. So their, their vacation moments, the, 
I don't know, the, the when their relationship is in this peak state of love. So all you're seeing is everyone's top moments of the day or year or whatever. I think it, even though intellectually we can know, oh, this isn't reality. This person probably has ups and downs to not every day is, you know, a walk on the beach. I think it, it doesn't feel like that emotionally. I think it ends up making what I see a lot of my clients feel less than and not good enough. And it gets those voices louder in their heads about um, who they like who they think they should be basically and where they think they should be at. Because to be honest, there is no, I don't think it's possible to be in your twenties and not be in some sort of like, what's going to happen? And am I going to be able to do this? And is everything going to be okay? And you can't see that in the smiling faces of the people in their bikinis on the beach. Like you just, <laughs> it's not the emotion that's expressed. And so I think it makes people end up it's this thing that's supposed to help people feel more connected, but it often makes people feel more, more alone. And I, and then I think there's pressure for them to live up to having some sort of life like that. And so I think it's, I see some, like a small percentage of my clients really using it in a, in a way that does help them feel more connected and does help them further their career goals. And in that way, it's really beautiful, but it's, I think it's much more challenging than we all realize, basically. That makes sense that it's, you know, a tool that could be used for, for both good purposes as well as bad. What, what do you see as kind of like the, some solutions, um, you know, to, to sort of both helping, I guess, individuals kind of navigate, uh, you know, is it just kind of understanding that, you know, what you're seeing on social media, that this is kind of people's, you know, uh, idealistic uh, lives. It's not necessarily how they're living on a daily basis, just kind of that education or what, what, what's your sort of role as a, as a therapist when, when it comes to issues regarding social media? I think education helps. Like that's like step one. But I think often when you're in a, or when my clients are not in a good place, it's hard for them to, uh, they can, like I said, they can intellectually know it, but not emotionally feel it. So my big thing is when you're engaging in it and it's not feeling good, then it's time to take a break and, and step back. Because I think sometimes too, it can be seen as like a replacement for actual interaction and connection and all of that. And I think the more that you have now in Corona, it's less maybe face to face, but even talking on the phone and actually connecting to a person is fulfilling in a, in a different way than looking at someone. It's, it's more connected than looking at someone's post. So the more that you have that in your life, connection, like real connection and feeling really understood by the people that are close to you, then that counteracts the negative part, I think. Then you can go into social media, um, like using it for the positive, positive part, because you're not trying to fill something that's too deep for it to fill, essentially. Okay. Does that make sense? It, it does, yeah. I wanted to ask you about, uh, there's a quote, I'm forgetting where I heard this from, 
but basically uh, saying that kind of in your 20s, people often have, you know, a large amount, they have a large social circle. It's kind of more about quantity. And then as people move into their 30s, uh, the social circle kind of slims down and it becomes more about sort of quality, sort of deepening those uh, friendships, but, but having sort of fewer in general. Is that something that you find to, to be true in, in just your work with people in their 20s and moving into their 30s or not so much? You know, it's funny. I haven't really, I haven't heard that or thought about that. So I'll have to think right now. I mean, I know my first thought when you say that is as people develop more, which is more and more, as people develop more serious romantic connections, which is now more likely to happen at the beginning of your 30s than it used to be. Like people are staying, a lot of people in their 20s are not committed. There, there are a good group that are, but there are a lot that not, that aren't. So your friend, so you have more time for your social and it's filling a bigger piece of your connected part. So, so and that was definitely true true for me um because i met my husband when i was 29 so as as developing a more serious romantic relationship and then having to integrate another person's family and their group and their friends it does it does become at least for me personally then a matter of connecting to the people that i feel really close to and everything feels like it gets busier and busier so there is less time for the acquaintance uh, the acquaintance wrong than there than there used to be. Right on. What um, about for you? Um, as far as whether I've seen that that pattern play out, mm -hmm. um, I'm 23, so I don't know. Wow. I guess you're yeah. still at the beginning. We'll still find the beginning. out. <laughs> yeah, just kind of navigating the the post college sort of social climate. I guess yes. you could say, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you about uh, your. I saw you have a podcast. Uh, yes. The is it live better? Yes. Okay. Tell me what what inspired you to want to do a podcast and sort of get in onto the sort of media side of things, if you will. Yeah, it's really so. The podcast was really the. It was my baby step towards the book. I always knew that I wanted to write the book, but I'm not, um, I haven't been confident in my writing. I'm more confident in my ability to speak my ideas and talk them out. And so the podcast was kind of um, an experiment to see if, if I could speak some of my ideas out in 10, 15 minute episodes through a, through a story, would that would the ideas that I'm saying in my session when I'm looking someone in the eye, would they, would they still translate? And I felt like it did as I watched my clients pass along the podcast episodes to their friends and their friends of friends. Um, I got feedback that people were getting something out, out of it. And so for me, it was just, I'm, I'm an introvert who actually hasn't been in the social media that world world that much or the media world. I built my business word of mouth basically is my, was my strongest re referral source, but I'm inspired to help as many people I can. Like I always say I have two passions in my life. 
um, snowboarding and helping people as much as possible. So, so that, that was the, that was the motivation for the podcast was really to see if I could see if I could get to a, a bigger audience. Okay. And I saw, I was just scrolling through the, the different podcast uh, titles. I saw one of them, um, why I quit drinking when I wasn't an alcoholic. What's that one yes. about? Uh, so, um, let's, uh, let's, let's go back. That was a while ago. So, um, when I, what I, I met my husband and as many episodes you'll see of any romantic show, there was much more drinking and celebrating in the first year of being together than I had done previously. I was a person that like had a couple drinks on a Friday and Saturday, maybe, you know, once a week, twice a week. And when I met him, you know, I think we were just so excited to fall in love and be together that the, it, it wasn't like we were now drinking all the time, but it felt like a much bigger part of my life. And I could kind of physically feel like my energy going down from it a little bit. So there was one weekend where we were like, you know what, let's take a 30 day cleanse off alcohol, just reset, see how we feel. And we, and we did that. And the whole entire 30 days, we were like, we get to the end of this, we're going to have margaritas, it's going to be awesome. And because and part of the rules were we had to go to everything that we were normal. We couldn't like just hide away for 30 days. We had to participate in the world as we had participated in it before. So we went to parties, you know, uh, and all these social gatherings that there would normally be alcohol. And it was hard for me. I'm not going to lie. Like it was, it was hard because I'm shy and that drink helped lubricate me a little bit and get, got me to open up and talk to people. And so, you know, it was a struggle. And then we got to the end, we went out to a Mexican restaurant, we ordered these giant margaritas and we looked at them and, and we didn't want them. Like, we were like, you know what? This is so strange. We've been resisting this this whole time. And from there, we didn't drink for the next, turns out, eight years. So, um, and we've integrated it a little bit now. But what, what it gave me after those 30 days and going forward was the ability to build my social skills in a different way, to overcome my fears in a different way, and to be really clear about how I wanted to spend my time and who I wanted to spend my time with. Because if you add alcohol in, it, you know, like I said, I was using it in order to lubricate myself a little bit. Oh, I'm, I might go hang out with these people that I'm not that connected to, but I'm having a drink, so it doesn't really matter. But becoming sober made, made it really clear that all activities that I was going to do socially and in my life were to really better myself. And it felt really empowering to me to be able to have just as much fun and to feel just as free um, and just as centered. It took a while to get there, but I did. And when I did that, that felt like a huge accomplishment. And I recommend it for anybody, not, you don't have to quit for eight years, but to take time off 
things that are uh, like alcohol or some people smoking weed or cigarettes, even caffeine, when you take your addictions out of the picture, you can end up growing much at a much faster rate and connecting to yourself on a much deeper level, which then translates into you having a deeper sense of inner peace in every aspect of your, of your life. That's, that's what it gave me. Like my peace became really grounded in me anytime, anywhere, in any situation I could be in. And it sounds like you, you didn't really have, know what to sort of expect when you started that experiment, right? You weren't, you weren't thinking all that this stuff was going to happen. No, not at all. I was just thinking like, it'll be good kind of physically to like take a break from alcohol. And then all the psychological benefits of that were uh, a much uh, appreciated surprise, basically. What are, uh, what are some of the common things that, that come up for, I assume you have a fair amount of clients who, uh, or patients who uh, cut out alcohol or smoking weed or whatever, whatever other sort of drug of choice or uh, habit of choice, what, what sort of things you often notice? Is it, do they sort of also gain that sort of mental clarity at, as far as figuring out what they really want? Is that a common experience? Yes, but you have only, it's only the clients that hang in long enough to get the ego to stop yelling at you that you're missing out on something. So like I told you, when I got to 30 days, there was something inside me that had switched, but it wasn't really till about, I wouldn't say until I was at the six month mark that I really got as many benefits as I did because at first you're gonna be, if you're taking something out that's giving you something, and I don't like here, this is like a side note, I don't like that things are like um, portrayed often as I'm an addict or not an addict or I'm addicted or not addicted. I just think everything is a continuum. So some people are get really addicted to things. Luckily, I don't. That <clears throat> I'm lucky in that way that like I can have a couple drinks and be good with it. But but even if you're having a couple drinks, that's still, that's still serving a purpose. And so to hang in long enough to build the skill and the coping mechanism that that substance was serving for you can be incredibly empowering. And I've seen it be incredibly empowering for my clients as well. Another one I haven't mentioned is serial dating. A lot of times I have my clients take off time if they dated and dated or gone from relationship to relationship, I have them take time to just be with themselves. And at first, they're often fighting it and resisting it. Life isn't as fun and, you know, and it's lonely and it's hard, but they get to this place where they feel really connected to themselves. They feel really proud of themselves that they're generating their own fun and fulfillment and freedom. and. Um, and I've seen great transformations that way. And as soon as they get there, where they're almost scared to go back into the dating world, then it's time to go look for a romantic partner if that's what they, if that's what they originally wanted. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, another title of one of the podcasts. You, 
did a great job of titling these, by the way. Thank you. Um, I really like these. So how I became a therapist as an awkward introvert. What were, yes. what were some of the challenges? Um, just curious, first off, do you, do you feel like the, I guess, majority of therapists, do they, you feel like people, they tend to be extroverts just in sort of a people, a client facing roles? You know, you would think so, but actually that wasn't my experience in, that's not my experience. I would say it's, it's skewed just like the normal population about 50, 50. So half of us are working on um, uh, putting ourselves out there more, becoming more verbal and the extroverts are working on sitting back and getting better at their listening. So, so that's not really, it's not really a thing, but I would say what's hard as an introvert and for other introverted therapists is the building your business parts. So you can become a therapist and there are lots of great jobs where you can go work for agencies or, you know, treatment programs. All, there's all sorts of things. And then your introversion doesn't matter as much because you show up to work and they assign you clients and, and, and that's, fine. Introverts are normally great at one-on-one -on -one conversation and great at listening. So we're highly skilled at actually doing the therapy part. The hard part for me uh, was I wanted to run, I wanted to be my own boss and I wanted to run my own business. And the idea of having to go out and network and promote myself, that was promote myself. That was terrifying for me. It was, so I had to practice with one of my friends like going out into the world uh, like a hundred times I we practiced one night me going hi my name is Jesse nice to meet you and looking someone in the eye because just that alone I was 20 I was like just a little bit older than you when I started so so I also wasn't confident completely in my in myself in, yet at the at the beginning so it was just about taking small baby steps towards it and attracting the kind of clients that i had the ability to help which at the time were teenagers and their parents because teenagers i had a lot more wisdom than them and parents liked me because i was able to become a bridge of communication between teenagers and their Teenagers felt understood by me and parents were grateful that I had someone translate their teenagers communication to them and was able to get them to open up. But yes, I was terrified, terrified in the beginning. I was thinking, why I'm good at math. Why didn't I become an accountant and sit in my office all day? Like this is a really social job and it's not just social with the clients. It's social with actually having to create a business. Oh. Right, right. And it, as you created the the business, what what were some of the other big like challenges or sort of unexpected things that you had to had to face in terms of creating sort of your your own practice? And I mean, along with that, you know, the podcast. And I saw you have a looks like you have a blog as well. Yes. So um, you're kind of a, a a combination of different sort of things that you integrate. Sounds like. Yes. Yeah. So I think the, what I under, 
in college, I was a, a psychology major. Then I went to grad school and learned how to um, become a therapist. Like psycholo uh, psychology in college was more research-based and in graduate school, it was more how do you actually do the therapy, which was fantastic. So I left grad school feeling like I really know how to sit in a room and help people. But what I didn't realize at that time, which I tell now people wanting to become therapists in the future, is there was no, I didn't know how to build a business. I didn't know how to do my books. I didn't know how to market myself. I didn't know how to do any of that. And I had to learn all, and in retrospect, in college, I would have double majored in business and marketing or something like that because that that's what I underestimated was it's one thing to once you have a client to know how to help them it's another thing how do you get clients to actually come into your office so that how do you get people to actually believe in you and trust that you could help them that's where I was completely naive and completely underestimated the the amount of social that would that would take for me to for me to do, you know. Was it uh, when you when you say that the first thing that comes into my mind is sort of uh, portraying just confidence in your your own abilities and skills? Was that sort of the main thing that that you had to sort of convince uh, people to be you know become patients or clients just just out of you know your confidence in your work? Yes, it's like if you if you knew me, there was a part of me that had, I always, since I was a kid, had something where I could read people and know what they needed to hear in order to move forward. That was just a gift that was given to me. Like, you know, I've always had that. I've been the friend that people come to and ask advice. I've always been a good listener. So there was a part of me that had confidence in those skills but my confidence in how to tell people that I had those skills, that was just really against uh, my instinct of how to be in the world. Uh, mo most times in the world at that time, I would go into a party and I would observe and I would find one person to connect to and then connect to that person and have a deeper, com I always like not, always didn't feel good at small talk, which is part of what networking is too. Like, I want to just go in and have a deeper conversation. I would rather have that than connect to 20 people with, you know, five, 10 minute conversations. But what are you doing when you're going out into the world at a networking event? You got to go have 20, 10 minute conversations and you have to figure out how to express what you do in five minutes or less. That that took me a long time to figure out how to do that. So it was more like the confidence of presenting myself than the actual confidence in the skill itself. They're two different things, you know, which is tricky sometimes when people are looking for therapists or coaches. I think some, some it's great when you find someone that has both, the ability to present themselves and the, the ability to deliver. But often I found that they don't always line up the difference between like a therapist and like a life coach 
I mean, no, the, the difference between someone who's good at selling themselves and someone who's good at helping people, you can have both those skills, but they're two different skills. So there are some people that are really good at selling themselves, but not actually great at helping you. And there are people that are great at helping you, but not great at selling themselves. I see. I see. Um, I, I guess I was sort of wanting, going to, uh, ask you your take on, on life coaches and like sort of versus therapists. Cause I, I've had some life coaches on the show along with therapists and yes. it's kind of, uh, seems like kind of, uh, uh, attacking similar problems just from different, with different, uh, tools, um, different sort of skill sets. Um, but what, what's your, what's your take on like the difference between those two? Yes. Okay. Well, how it, um, I have so many things to say about this, where to start. Okay. So one, I have training in both. So I'm, I'm well-versed in, and, and I've had experience with both. So I'm well-versed in both worlds. I think the thing to know is that therapists, to become a therapist, it's really regulated. You have to have gotten a, at least a graduate degree. Then you have to have gotten 3,000 hours of experience while being supervised by someone else who's training you. And then you're going to take two licensing exams. And then you can go out and help people on your own. So that's at least like eight years of experience and working hard reaching these milestones in order to, to now be qualified to help someone with their psychological um, issue. A coach, you could, I could just hang up my sign on the door and say, I'm a coach tomorrow. It's not reg. There is like the international coaching federation, but a lot of people don't have that credential. You don't need it. Anybody could say it now. So so I would say it's when you're looking to hire someone, you should be really, um, in either field, you should be really cautious about who the person is and whether your gut is telling you that they could help you. But especially with a coach, you should be asking them what, what makes them qualified because, because it's not based on school or um, it's not regulated in the same way. So that's one thing. The other thing, and that's why coaches will often say, I don't do therapy because they are not allowed to go as emotionally deep as someone with eight years of training is allowed to go. Um, if you're anxious, a therapist is going to be more trained in how to deal with that than a, than a coach stereotypically because a coach didn't go through um, eight years of, of school. But what the coaches have on the therapist is their programs are often much more action oriented and they have more steps to follow. This is why I became trained in coaching is I wanted to take, okay, we worked through the anxiety. Now let's go and create a plan for you having a great life. And coaches stereotypically are more trained to do that and come from a more uh, positive, a po more positive place. So. So, well, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's, that's really cool. Uh, it, it almost seems like you sort of need to integrate those two. I mean, like sort of what you've done. I mean, it seems like both are, are 
super important for, for, I guess, understanding and being able to help kind of like the whole person. Yeah. I, I, I really like it as a, as a combination because, because then I have the ability to, if you just come to me for coaching, we're going to create a structure. We're going to go after it. But when you get stuck, I have a deeper tool set to then undo that block than had I not had all my therapist training or in, in reverse, if you come to me because you're really depressed and then we've worked through the depression normally, then the therapy would be over. But I realized a lot of people didn't want to leave after we solved the problem because they now wanted to go create a structure to go create the life they wanted. And it's so it's nice that now we can move into that mode of um, going after life, basically. We can move into a different place once you've overcome the major psychological hurdles or blocks. Absolutely. Well, Jesse, uh, we're coming up on to the end of the show, but uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. If people want to find out more about uh, your work, uh, your blog, your podcast, um, or also uh, your new book that's coming out tomorrow, um, where would you direct them to? So I think the best place to go, which we'll put in my show notes, in the show notes, I'm sure, because my name is really hard to spell. But if you go to my website, jesse-genta-rafe.com, it's got it all. So it's got the book and the blog and ways to reach out to me. And you kind of get a feel, a little bit deeper feel for who I am if you, if you listen to the podcast or you read the blog as well. Awesome. I'll definitely link that to, in the show notes. And for those of you who've enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, Roscoe's Wetsuit. And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and now uh, we're on Stitcher. So go ahead, check us out whichever way you want. Jesse, again, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Absolutely.